0: Uh, once again, we're uh, in, in conversation on what we're kind of calling the, the Resurrection Project. It is, it is based on an understanding that Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead uh, did, is not simply an historical event that occurred 2,000 years ago that we get to celebrate every Easter, but that that event, given its nature, is a reshaping, refining, reorienting of the entire universe from that point on. That it is, it, is, it works itself out in and into all of the dynamics of our lives uh, in ways that, if we will allow it to, reshapes our whole sense of self and what we're here on the planet for and where we're going and why we're going there. So, this resurrection project is not simply then something you, you drive by and take a picture of. It is a lived reality uh, that we're 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 invited into, because it, it did not just happen to Jesus. We are invited to enter into it for ourselves. So with that, what we've been trying to do is just look at a couple of snapshots. Darren did a, a, a flyover. A couple of weeks ago of three or four stories that have have kind of give us a snapshot of what the resurrection project looks like and in the last two weeks uh, yesterday last week and today i 'm looking into a couple of those stories at greater depth so we 're going to be in the in the gospel of john again we'll be in the twenty first chapter this time and and I want to just spend some time uh, with you on on probably one of the for me at least one of the most profound stories uh, as part of what you know, kind of fit into our category of the Resurrection Project. So John chapter 21, if anybody uh, needs Bibles, we've got some extras on the sides. And if you want to just kind of hold up your hand, we'll make sure you get one uh, so you can uh, follow along. That'd be great. Thank you. Anybody else? We're good? All right. So in the green one here, I'm on page uh, 757. Before you go there, though, uh, if if you have this green one, look in the front cover and you kind of get a snapshot of what the Resurrection Project is. It says, creation, life, and beauty undone by death and wrongdoing, regained by God's surprising victory. That's the resurrection project. The things that got broken uh, have been restored. So last time, uh, we were, we were with, with Thomas and the disciples in the, in the upper room uh, and, and discovered that part of Jesus's project here, is not to pat us on the head and say, there, there, it'll be all right in the morning, uh, not to simply smooth over our brokenness, our wounds, not to turn our wounds into scars that we just twinge whenever we think of, but to leave them as open wounds through which He is available to people who will not be impressed with resurrection in any other way but to see wounds that are no longer damning and damaging, but now healing and peace and a place of encounter with the resurrected Christ. I know it's a new understanding of us. Sometimes I think when we, we use this idea of, 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 of the, the cross and resurrection and so on, we just think that Jesus kind of spackles over the brokenness and, and, and makes it all go away. But I think if you've lived long enough to have had some deep and painful things occur to you, and have been, you have been shaped by those wounds, you have been shaped by that suffering, you've been shaped by grief, you've been shaped by loss, the cross and the resurrection in heaven does not take away that loss. It makes it instead a place of entry into this resurrection project. It becomes a place of wholeness. It becomes a place of healing. So Thomas was invited to put his fingers into not scars but wounds, to place his hand not into a closed-up place but an open place of encounter, to enter into literally the resurrection project. And I would like to suggest last week that, that that is the same um, attitude that we have towards our own wounds and our own brokenness. They become um, uh, the, 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 the places of, of, of usefulness, the place where somebody else can get traction in their own lives. That in mind, uh, we want to look at this next story uh, that, that kind of highlights a different way of coming at this as, as well. So Jesus in the Gospel of John has um, shown his sense of humor, at least it seems to me, in that he is willing to just show up when he is unexpected. Uh, so three times he shows up in the Gospel of John after his resurrection. This this morning will be the third time. So Numbers 1 and 2, remember within uh, on the day of his resurrection, the disciples are in the upper room, doors windows being shut. They are, are waiting for encounter. No, they're waiting to die. They don't know what to do. They're chaotic and confused. They have heard the rumor that Jesus has been raised from the dead, have no idea what to make of that, and so they just are paralyzed in their fear and hope and all that in between. Jesus shows up and breaks bread with them to indicate that he's not a ghost, that his body has substance, but not substance that is contained and limited by material, substance that can transfer between spiritual and material as readily as it was built to in the first place. Then a week later, because Thomas wasn't there at the first time, he shows up again. So seven days later, uh, they are gathered again, doors, windows being shut, in that room, wait, uh, in 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 wonder of what is going to happen next. Because remember, they have focused their entire lives for the last three years at following this man, and now he's gone, and they can't follow him in the same way as they have in the previous two and a half, three three and a half years. So they don't, know what they're, they don't know what to do. So they're there that second week, and Jesus shows up, makes himself available and present to Thomas, and then um, I, I, I bet you can tell me what they were doing on the third Sunday night. Three weeks out from resurrection, guess where they were. My guess is they're in the upper room, and they have made sure now this time to purposefully lock all the doors and windows. Apparently that's a necessary condition for him showing up. So there they are, all gathered together, doors and windows, and they're just kind of looking like they're not expecting anything because that worked before, but they're expecting something. Anybody else return to the scene of the crime? Find yourself, you know, a place of blessing before, a place of encounter before, and you just want to create the same magic, right? And, and so you go through all of the same stuff, and, and next third time, nothing. They just, well, well I, guess he's, I guess he's not coming or what and this apparently continued on long enough that they just got fed up and decided to go back home because bills are coming due and and they need to continue to to make a living and and they don't know what the resurrection project whatever that is looks like next right so they go back home and and we picked them up at the beginning of chapter 21 where uh, Peter and a few others of them, John and probably James, and the same guys that were there before had gone back home. And they, 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 were, they were there, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, when he says this, you need to kind of realize what he's saying here. Remember, Peter was a professional fisherman before, and that's the word that he uses here. He's not talking about, you know, we've got a few hours to kill. I think I'm going to go and drop the line in the, in the lake and just see what, what happens, you know. Um, he's, he doesn't have his little fishing hat with the little hook stuck around it, and he's out there in the boat, you know, with the with pina colada waiting for, for None of that. He has gone out to back to work. He is back to work. I'm going fishing And it says that they are casting the nets, the same nets, the method they used to fish, into the sea. So Peter's gone back to work. He has no idea when, if ever, Jesus is going to show up again. He hasn't been there often enough to give them any kind of assurance. And in the Gospel of John, there is no indicator that Jesus told them what they should be doing next. So they're they're stuck. They go out, go fishing. And then... Out of the shadows, as night turns to day in that hazy moment of sunrise, a voice comes from the lake, from the from the beach rather. You haven't got any fish, have you? No. Cast your net on the other side. Now, I don't know if you've... Ever been a professional anything and been given advice by a layperson who's not actually doing what it is that you're doing? He, this is a guy on the beach giving professional fishermen counsel as to what to do to catch the, the 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 fish. Right now, maybe it's an echo that they heard on this same beach. That same we don't know, but they decide give it a shot, drop the nets on the other side, and immediately they get hit with the biggest catch that they can remember. One of them clues in and says, it's the Lord. John clues in and says, it's the Lord. He doesn't recognize Him. He doesn't recognize His voice. He doesn't recognize Him in the command, but He recognizes them in Him in their obedience to the command. As they obey, they know who He is. With me? And Peter immediately puts on his outer robe. He's taking it off for, for work, puts it on, and, 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 and belly flops into the lake and dog paddles his way to shore. Now, the only way I can make sense of this is, um, is, 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 is what happens, because, again, in the Gospel of John, Peter and Jesus have not spoken. The last conversation Peter and Jesus are recorded as having is the conversation in which Jesus, in that same upper room three weeks ago, said, even if all of these betray you, I never will. That's the last conversation. And Jesus is just looking at him, not with, not with, not, not, not with anger, just with sadness. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the, before the rooster crows twice. No, not me. You don't know me that well. That's the last conversation we have recorded in the Gospel of John. So Peter knows that Jesus is right about him, that under pressure, the rock crumbled. He knows that. What do you do if you've messed up and you see somebody who has been the object of your betrayal there? What do you do? I don't know if this makes any sense to you or not. Anybody have a dog that acts like Peter does? A little uh, we had a beagle once that every time every time it did something wrong it it, it 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 and it would it knows it did something wrong. It would kind of lose its neck and just kind of kind of drag its butt over. You know, kind of hoping it, are, am, are we am I going to live is it still okay? Do, do, do you know? Anybody, you, you, you recognize this? Anybody, have, maybe if you had two or three kids, one of your kids is like this, right, where where they just know, okay, I messed up, I messed up, and, and I'm just going to, you know, mom, uh, how do you like your tea? How do you like your tea? You, you like it iced with a little bit of honey, right, right, right? We're just bending over backwards to, to kind of Uh, Right? And I think that's what Peter's doing. He just, he just, he just, he's beside himself because Jesus and he have not talked about the elephant in the room. And the elephant not talked about in the room does not shrink, it grows. Peter is being crushed by the weight of the elephant and just wants to get this. And when they get to shore, Jesus is already got a fire going. It says that the coals have already turned to charcoal. So he's, and he's got fish frying on it. Now, where do they come from? Right? So, well, you guys can bring the fish you, you caught. So immediately, Peter just flops back out into the surf, grabs the net, and hauls the thing up onto ground, still fish flopping around, 100 John says, and 53 fish. Now, I have no idea why the Holy Spirit thought it important that we know 2,000 years after the fact how many fish they caught that day. I, and, and, and to be honest, in my exegeting this, working on this over the years, I mean, there are unbelievable scenarios with numbers on what this 153 means. And uh, it, who knows? Who, just who knows? I personally think... Because I'm not a fisherman. I'm not the the son of a fisherman. So I I don't know if this is true, but every fisherman that I have ever talked to, who's a true fisherman? Any true fisherman here, you you know what I'm talking about? They know precisely to the number how many fish they caught last time they went out. And I'm wondering if the reason they knew today was 153 is because it was the last fishing trip they took. Something shifted as a result of the conversation which is about to fall. I don't know. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. So they finish up breakfast, and then Peter finds himself walking down the beach with Jesus. And, and, and it's the beagle look. Look. Are we we finally going to talk about this? Do we have to talk about this? Jesus isn't being mean here. And when he asks this question, I want you to see the twinkle in his eye. I want you to hear the teasing tone in his voice. It's really important because otherwise we're thinking Jesus is a jerk just rubbing Peter's nose in it. He's not. There's 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 a strategy to what he's doing. Peter, remember the words last Peter and Jesus had? Do you love me more than these? He says. Pick it up with me at verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, five, six, seven minutes down the beach. Simon, son of John, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt, he was cut to the quick, he was laid bare because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, mind your own business. Oh, wait. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. So this is a story that is profound in its implications, obviously, for Peter, but I think for any and all of us who have at any given time betrayed, failed, fallen. Conversation begins, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? This is not the way Peter expects this conversation to go. Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. The second time, Peter is beginning to get an inclination of where this bus is likely to stop. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my lambs. The third time, Peter has, in the hearing of this question, descended to the core of his open wound. Three betrayals, three questions. I don't know him. Peter, do you love me? I never knew him. Peter, do you love me? I'm not one of them. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know, it says he was was laid open. By that third question. Jesus will not allow us to simply wallpaper over the points of separation between him and us. He will not pat us on the head and say it'll be all right in the morning, especially when it will not be all right in the morning. As long as we will not let ourselves off the hook, Jesus will not let us off the hook. Peter just wants to make it go away. Jesus wants to make use of it. Peter wants to pretend this has never happened. Jesus wants to build his kingdom on it. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that open wound and what it means. You know, you know, you know. That I love you. Tend my flock. There's so much going on here, but part of what we want to remember is that restoration, the resurrection project, restoration includes, necessarily includes, a backwards look before it includes a forwards look. It includes ownership of the past failure. It includes embrace of our disappointments before it means anything towards the future. If it doesn't, all it is is sentimental triumphalism. That's all we get. If it doesn't honestly look at the open, bleeding wound of our betrayal, if it just wallpapers over it, then restoration is nothing more than window dressing. It doesn't really matter. So Peter is required to bring the elephant to the center of the room and own it. This is my story. And notice what Jesus never mentions, but you know what's going on in Peter's mind as those three questions drill deep into the center of his pain. Jesus never mentions it. Instead, what does Jesus do? every time Peter embraces his own heart and is willing to stop shaming himself, Jesus says, back in the game. Peter has benched himself with shame. He has no idea if he will ever be useful again. Jesus has not benched Peter. Peter has benched Peter. And Jesus needs Peter back in the game. So what does he do? All right, let's talk about this. But let's not talk about this. Let's address this. But let's not talk about this anymore. Is it true, Peter? Do you love me? You know. You're right, I do. Now, Back in the game. You'll notice here that restoration for Peter resulted in a shift in mission. Remember the first time on this lake that Peter was asked by Jesus to follow him? What was his commission? I will make you fishers of men. Now what does he do? He makes him a shepherd of the sheep. Now why does he do that? I am convinced that Peter is qualified to pastor because he's failed, and he wouldn't have been had he not that you are qualified by failure for things for which you will never be qualified by success that failure is not only is a necessary necessary preparation for partnership with Jesus in his work work in the world. Failure is necessary. In fact, in, in teaching my class on pastoral care this semester, it, it shows up pretty much every time I talk about this, but I, I tell students that you are not qualified to care for anybody until you have, se- have yourself failed. Otherwise, you're going to care from a position of superiority, which is not helpful. Got to care from a place of failure yourself, How many of you have discovered you're qualified for things because you failed that you would not have been qualified for if you succeeded isn't that amazing And still we shame ourselves for the failure. Still, the enemy brings it up in the middle of the night i've got I've got half a dozen m p four files that play in my head in the middle of the night that even in the middle of the night, I can still be brought up to shame because of something I said or something I did or somebody I hurt or some stupid boneheaded thing that I did. And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? That's what qualifies. Now, he didn't make me fail, but my failure enabled me to be actually useful down the line. Tomorrow, Judy and I are going to be celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary. She was here in the service this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one who deserves the applause, actually, to be honest. Uh, But seven years in, I blew up our marriage. Catastrophic failure. She told me that as far as she was concerned, her marriage was over. And uh, that while she would continue to live with me because if she divorced me, it would ruin my ministry Um, as far as she was concerned, it was over. She was tired of competing with my mistress, namely the church, my work for God. And that had a bunch of stuff attached to it. By the grace of God, she let me learn how to be married to her. took me three years, slow learner. And allowed that failure to build into a marriage that now, 35 years later, is the sweetest thing I've ever experienced in my life. Now, did I fail so that? No. I failed. Now. Do do, do you see? And and we could go down the line, couldn't we? We could each just give a, a quick popcorn statement. So so we've got to own the wound. We've got to own the failure. And here's here's the thing that I need you to sit with. Peter didn't Peter doesn't have a testimony. He wasn't living somewhere before Jesus, his betrayal of Jesus didn't occur before. He doesn't have a, a, a long story of sin and degradation and dragging himself through the gutters. When did his betrayal of Jesus occur? After he had confessed he is Lord. After he had said, made the statement, you are the living God. After he had done that, Peter failed. With malice aforethought, Peter failed knowing full well what he was doing. Peter failed and was restored and put back in the game. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but that's really good news to me. Because if grace is only good for the things that happen by accident, if grace is only good Good for the things that we do when we're not thinking about it, grace is useless to people like me. Because frankly, sometimes I look my sin full in the face. I know that what I'm about to do is the wrong thing to do. I know that there's a price to pay for it, and I still do it anyway. Can I get a witness? Three of you. Thank you, brothers. And if grace isn't good enough for folks like the three of us, what is the point of it for anybody? In fact, I will argue again that sometimes those catastrophic, self-destructive choices we make are what qualify us to actually be useful in the caring for other people. Paul puts his finger on this. He says, look... If you see a brother who has stumbled, for God's sake, don't let those of you who have never stumbled help him. He doesn't say it quite that way. What he says instead is, let those of you who are spiritual restore such a one, how? In a spirit of meekness. How do you get meekness? You move past the embarrassment of being caught to humility at having fallen. Get it? So Peter hears Jesus say again, and please listen. Same words that he heard on the same seashore a few years ago. Follow me. What they meant then, they mean now. A rabbi speaking to a blue-collar worker, a rabbi speaking to a nothing and a nobody saying, What? You have, I think, Peter, you've got the capacity to be like me. I think you can do this. I think you have the ability to live your life the way I would if I were you. No wonder Peter's on board. And no wonder he feels shame because he demonstrated that he didn't have that capacity. So here, what does Jesus say to him again? At the end of all of this, what does he say? Follow me. Peter, I believe in you. I think you can do this. You're not alone. Let's do this. Now, Peter, I just love this, because you cannot change temperament or personality. Have you noticed this? Even grace doesn't help some people. Right? Because Peter's personality immediately comes out again. (laughs) He sees that little twerp, John, following... Not even at a respectful distance. The jerk is close enough to overhear the conversation. And so Peter, hearing the shuffling in the sand, turns and looks at John, then looks at Jesus. What about him? And I love this next part because Jesus is erupting in laughter. Mind your own business. Mind your own blessed business. (laughs) How many of you want to do spirituality by comparison? Discipleship by comparison, following by comparison. How many know that you'd be much more spiritual if you had somebody else's life? And Jesus says to you, Mind your own business. I got people to touch that that person you admire would never have the capacity to speak to. Your failure qualifies you for that conversation that their success would never qualify them for. You have the ability to speak into the hearts and lives of people that that person has no capacity for. Mind your own blessed business. Follow me. It's an invitation, isn't it, to our life as it actually is without expectation without shame, in the full embrace of our failures, our wounds. Sometimes we're qualified for things by failure that we are not qualified for by success. And we're invited into a new pattern of relationships. Now, here's the hard part. When, when Jesus had finished this recommissioning of Peter, he said, when you were younger, you used to wear what you wanted and go where you wanted. Well, not, not anymore. When you are older, as you mature, as you develop, somebody else is going to decide what you wear. You're going to hold your hands out, and somebody else is going to lead you where you don't want to go. He said this, John says, parenthetically, to indicate... By what kind of death Peter would glorify God? A lot of the commentators think, and I don't have any reason to disagree with them, that what Jesus is doing here is prophesying Peter's literal, physical death by crucifixion a few years down the line. But I think Jesus might be doing something else as well. And that is indicating that as Peter matures, as he develops, his range of options as a disciple becomes narrower and narrower, and it is defined by the people he serves, not by his own will. It's the nature, if you're interested, that's the nature of pastoring. Sheep determine your pace. This is the kind of death, Peter, by which you will glorify me, by which you will reveal me, follow me, mind your own business. I'm wondering if some of you, perhaps even this morning, are feeling the constraints of your life of following. A year ago, six months ago, you had certain kinds of freedoms that you could enter into without even questioning whether they were appropriate for you or not, and now in the last few few weeks, few months, he has just been saying, eh, 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 "eh, not so much anymore." Let's not be doing this anymore. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He just said, "eh." What's he doing? He's signifying by what kind of death you will glorify God. Any questions? No wonder. What about him? <laughs> what about you? Now, here's where this takes a nasty turn. He wants you to be part of his restoration, resurrection project. How can I do that except be the recipient of such amazing grace? How about by being the carrier of such amazing grace? How about in relationships in which you have been betrayed, do you extend restoration and forgiveness to people who have hurt you? How about instead of shaming them, you embrace them and let them be restored? It's hard for us, isn't it? Especially with people we care for and love to let them off the hook, because that hook gives us power for years. All all we need to do is just a raised eyebrow. How many know what that feels like? Yeah? (laughs) Right? And Jesus just says, stop raising your eyebrow. Restore, restore, restore. Join me, he says in this resurrection project. It'll hurt like hell. No, not quite. I've been there, and you'll be okay. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit with this text, um, we we are just, I'm just amazed by your grace and your mercy because I'm like Peter in so many ways. I, I intend well, I speak well, I declare well, and then I fall flat on my face. And not even privately, often just publicly, embarrassing myself and you. It's amazing to hear you invite me, invite us, back into the game. And in fact, to discover that our very failure has qualified us, For a new role in your kingdom that we weren't qualified before. Oh Lord, I pray for courage to be ambassadors of restoration, ambassadors of reconciliation. To act it out in our own lives. To say yes to the confining, to the restricting of our lives. To our way of identifying with your crucifixion. Because we want also to identify with your resurrection. Ms. Pete and the team leaders here, I'm just going to invite you to sit. Heads bowed, eyes closed. What does Jesus want to talk to you about today? What's the elephant in your room? Perhaps it's the need to join him in his project and forgive someone who you have hung on to for too long. Perhaps the person you need most to forgive is yourself and allow him restore you. You may want to make your way to the crosses, to a place of communion. You may want to invite someone to pray with you. But let's just spend a few minutes and let the Holy Spirit search our hearts.